This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. We're broadcasting live from Warren's campus today joined by my co-host, senior economist and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products and the views are guests, uh, not those of Wisdom Treat Affiliates. And I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. We're going to have a very interesting show from campus today. We've got a portfolio manager from Schaefer Cullen talking about small caps. It's been one of the interesting areas of the market. But Professor, we're going to get your views to kick us off talking about a lot of more data. We've got your, some of your views on the Fed inflation. Uh, give us your latest. Yeah, well, uh, it was basically really good news, certainly on the inflation front, both PPI and, and, and CPI coming in uh, below expectation. Um, I, I'm a little bit surprised. Everyone said, uh, oh, this uh, uh, guarantees or ups uh, dramatically the probability of a, of a soft landing. I would say the following. It definitely ups the probability dramatically of a landing. <laughs> it's not guaranteed at this point that it's going to be soft. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, yes, inflation is subsiding, but the economy is weakening. Now, a little bit of weakening is not a problem. Uh, as long as it doesn't snowball into something more serious. Um, we had a rather significant tick upward of um, jobless claims, something that, as you know, we look at. Um, and actually, the continuing claims, which are a week lag, uh, I think hit a two-year high. Um, uh, the real data that did come through on industrial production, capacity utilization, uh, um, and some of the other indicators, all except the housing indicator on Friday, were really quite weak. Now, I'm not here. I'm not here to say, oh, my God, you know, the, the economy is falling apart. It is not falling apart, but it bears watching very closely. My only concern uh, is that the Fed is going to be stubborn and not uh, lower rates, as I think they should really be thinking of right now. Um, I really think any raise of interest rates off the tables, certainly for December, given the data that we've gotten, unless there's a dramatic reversal in the next month, which uh, doesn't doesn't look likely. With oil falling really quite dramatically, we're, we're going to get some more certainly good overall reading uh, readings. Uh, you know, what worries me basically is, as I've said, the money supply growth has been very sluggish, um, and um, it's uh, too sluggish to support what I'd say would be um, a moderately growing economy. Um, One way to push up the money supply growth would be to lower rates. And I think it's time for us to uninvert the yield curve um, and bring those short rates below those uh, long-term rates. Um, So my message to the Fed right now is look at the data very closely and don't, uh, in your December meeting, depending on what, transpires, 
become totally two-sided and don't uh, have the statement that, that uh, Powell had at the last meeting, we're not even talking about lowering rates. I think you've got to be talking about lowering rates. And in fact, I think by the March meeting, at least, and maybe by the January meeting, uh, that they will be uh, thinking of lowering rates a quarter or a half a point. Again, lots of data yet to come. This is not a situation like the 70s. They don't have to worry about stop, go, because the money supply is weak. Inflation expectations under control. Commodities are under control. Nothing is going on like the 1970s. Don't use a false narrative to postpone necessary rate cuts. Very interesting, Professor. And I, uh, I don't know if you saw... Austin Goolsby's speech in in Detroit this week. Uh, you know, I know you 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 critiqued Powell for not talking about productivity as one of the things, and and then they haven't focused as much as you have on the shelter driver. But Goolsby basically was singing your tune. He started off with the productivity being positive, and he said the only thing in inflation is shelter. I was like, wow, he's been listening. It was it was it was exactly yeah. what you've been saying. Uh, well, Goolsby, yeah, Goolsby's a kindred spirit. Chicago guy. I've always thought he was great. Um, and I, I was very pleased when he was, you know, appointed ahead of the Fed. And I, I think that he's going to be a, a, a really in, 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 uh, a really important uh, addition there. As you think for your outlook for next year, how much is the Fed part of the the critical part of the outlook? Is it is it just the economy earnings? When you think about the risks for next year? I'm very. Uh, the only thing that, that the really... The only downside is Powell and the Fed become very stubborn and saying we got to kill all inflation to two percent before we lower rates. That that is to me the biggest threat to the economy next year. I mean, there's always geopolitical issues and all the rest. They seem to be under under control now. Anything can flare up. The unexpected can happen. Uh, that is an outside of geopolitical in the sense that we could we could have a we could have a cyber attack on the grid. On the financial system, I, I, I have pointed that out, that that's a risk that sometimes is underestimated. There's always risks out there. But uh, right now, even, you know, it's 18 times earnings with all the tech stocks. It's 14, 15 without the tech stocks. And um, as you say, you know, when you get to the smaller caps, they're priced for recession. <laughs> a pretty severe one, in my opinion. So anything that gets better than that provides upside to the market. Yeah, that's going to be a big topic of our, our show today. Uh, we have a, a portfolio manager for Small Caps. Brian, do you want to get involved in the conversation with the professor? Any quick question for him before we say goodbye? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. And uh, Professor, good to be talking with you. I, I agree with uh, much of what the professor has been saying uh, about productivity and inflation. And, and Professor, I'm just curious if you still think productivity will balance out and in terms of the U.S. government debt and how productivity will increase GDP and maybe kind of alleviate the pressures longer term from the deficits, but also um, would productivity help us uh, grow GDP above trend, which should be positive for the equities? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I certainly it's going to help us, um, there, you know, because what's important, as we all know, is the debt to GDP ratio. And, and if you produce more GDP, you also collect more taxes. So you actually reduce the deficit. So you, you win both ways. To be very honest, though, when you look at the long-term debt, I really mean long-term. I mean, and I've been pointing this out for several years, the real kink in the debt ratio really comes in the mid-2030s. Uh, mid um, 
not in the next year or two or three. Um, and and those pro- those those um, programs do have to be reformed long run. Uh, there's no question about it. And, you know, do we have to think about it today or now? No, but it's got to be on someone's agenda. Uh, productivity will definitely help um, uh, the situation. But long term reform of those uh, is necessary, not critical within the next year or even two. Even though, as I pointed out, we're going to probably have a massive tax uh, rethink in, in 2016, depending on you know who comes into power because of the expiration of the Trump tax cuts. Um, and um, uh, uh, I think a lot of people are beginning to say long term, some of the benefits, not not to current participants, but those that are in their 20s or 30s and 40s uh, will be important uh, into the future. Well, Professor, I think we're going to get give next week the week off with the holiday for Thanksgiving. But uh, thanks for giving right. us. Right, everyone have a nice Thanksgiving week. There's also not very much data next week, which is which is also a good. Uh, but the week after that, there's a lot of data. So uh, we will uh, certainly uh, see you in two weeks and analyze what um, what comes uh, forward. Well, thanks for kicking us off to start the show. Have a great weekend. Thank you. I'm going to turn the conversation with Brian Drubetsky, who's a portfolio manager, managing director at Schaefer Cullen Capital. Uh, we, he focuses on small cap value opportunities, and and we'll talk a little bit about what Schaefer does. Um, but Brian, you you've been a listener, long time listener of the show. Thanks for for reaching out and tell us today, small caps. What's the case? Yeah, sure. So um, look, I I agree with the professor. I think that the Fed is likely done hiking. And the case for small caps has often been they're cheap. And it's true. They've been very cheap for a long time now. They've underperformed large caps for much of the last decade. Um, Where I think it's important to focus outside of their valuation and, and how they've been compressing versus large caps is on the environment we're in. So with inflation coming down, it's very positive for small caps. Look, when the Fed is done hiking, usually 12 months post, small caps outperform and they outperform meaningfully, uh, often by double digits. So the Fed being done is is critically important and it's gonna alleviate a lot of the pressures that small caps are facing and the debt burden they have. So the bear case on small caps, and it's certainly been playing out this year, is that they're more levered than the large caps. But if the Fed is done, and whether they start cutting in March or later in 2024, that's going to alleviate a lot of the pressure on small caps. Now, small caps are not only facing higher debt burdens and, and lower credit availability, they have been facing many other cost hurdles and, and labor is certainly one of them. So small caps are not as n- nimble or maybe they don't have as much scale as some of the large cap companies and labor is a big cost for them. Now, certainly interest expenses too, and we can talk about that. And um, I know you've been doing some work on that front, but looking ahead in 2024, it could be a really strong year for small caps. Um, there'll be more M&A likely, and, and that's been a major driver of small cap performance. Uh, empirically, if you look at the evidence, small caps typically outperform over the long term uh, because they're less efficient. Um, not as many people follow them, but there are also a lot of takeouts. 
And um, our portfolio has benefited from that in the past, small caps as a whole has. And now with more clarity, I think coming into 2024 about where the Fed is in terms of their Fed hi uh, hiking and, and starting to cut, I think more companies and strategics, private equity will be involved in taking over many of the small cap companies. And we've had a, a lot fewer small cap companies in the market um, over the last 20, 30 years um, because of the takeouts and the lack of them going public and waiting longer. So there's also many other themes we could talk about infrastructure yeah. spending and, and reshoring that also favor small caps. If, if there was a, so there's so many different things. There's valuation, which I think people get this lowest multiple stocks, as the professor was saying, the sort of opposite of the Magnificent Seven in, in many ways. Is, is If you said the one factor that is the factor of all factors outside of valuation, what's going to be the catalyst? I think you have to look at financials. Financials make up a big part of the small cap indices. If you look at the Russell 2000, banks make up 8% of the Russell 2000. If you look at small cap value, the area I um, work in, small cap banks, regional banks, community banks make up 16% of the index. There's 24% of financials, 16% yep. are regional banks. The yield curve, the professor mentioned this, um, is inverted. I think once it di uh, disinverts, um, that'll be very beneficial for the financials and the net interest margins and also alleviate the pressures on their security portfolios, which have obviously caused a lot of pain and, uh, with the March regional banking crisis with Silicon Valley Bank and others going under. So I think that is really one of the bull cases for small caps is interest rates coming down and hence the best sector to benefit from that are going to be the financials and the banks. Yeah, so Schaefer Cullen and, and you and you all in particular focus on dividends as, as, a, as one of the value factors is... Do, do small cap pay dividends or, and, why, and why dividends? Why is that an important factor to you all? Yeah, so uh, small caps do in fact pay dividends uh, about 40%. If you look at the Russell 2500, which is small mid caps and the Russell 2000, between 30 and 40% of the companies do pay a dividend. And I think it's misunderstood uh, how many companies and how many sectors within the small cap universe actually pay a dividend. Um, so I actually manage a, a SMID dividend portfolio as well. And we focus a lot on dividend, absolute dividend payouts, um, yields, but importantly, dividend growth. So dividend growth contributes a lot to our performance. And the companies, quite frankly, that are able to pay dividend and continue to grow their dividend don't have a lot of debt. So the companies that are over levered typically don't make it into our portfolios because we avoid um, overly indebted companies. Uh, but the ones that are generating strong free cash flows typically can pay a dividend and they're more stable. They're not maybe as exciting. Um, but across all sectors, there are companies, very strong companies that pay a dividend. And um, as we've talked about in our firm and to our clients, I think people are, you know, realize they're good inflation hedges as well. Uh, so for those who think inflation is not going away, uh, dividends grow nominally and they're a great inflation hedge. Uh, kind of what Professor talks about is super tips. Yeah, we we're, we sing the same tune a lot of the times there. Now, this, some people think buybacks are just a better tax structured way of getting the same kind of cash flow. What what do you all think about buybacks? How does that come into your equation? Do you would you say people should prefer buybacks over dividends as a as a value factor? So we do look at um, buybacks. We are more focused on dividends at our firm. I think, for the most part, small or even large cap companies. Management teams, board of directors, they oftentimes buy their own stock at the wrong time, unfortunately, when the stock is doing really well. And um, maybe some are a good job, do a good job of um, buying the stock when it's 
below its intrinsic value and they see opportunity and um, there's upside and rationale for doing it. I think most don't do a good job of buybacks. Um, there's muted debt issuance recently. It's down 30% in Q3. Uh, we may see more increased buybacks uh, next year, but it depends on the sector and what kind of regulatory hurdles, clearly financials, um, over the last couple of years have had problems doing buybacks. Now there's talk of the regional banks that are going to have to maybe issue about 120 billion in debt um, in order to beef up uh, their capital, uh, and that would prohibit them from paying dividends. But surprisingly, we've actually seen good dividend growth. And even in recessions, most of the time, you don't see dividend cuts, well, except for uh, one case in the great financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. When we look at the, the S&P 500 history, there's like five or six years where it's declined, and then that one big decline of of 20% in, in 2009 with the, with the financials having to cut, being forced to cut by taking the TARP money. But I, I want to come back to, well, you know, I, the, I, I, we, we structure a lot of our strategies around dividends. And so I, a believer, but you know, the, the this narrative on buybacks, people get accused, the, the management often gets accused of mistiming. Uh, and now I, when I look at some of the aggregate data, there's definitely people who issue shares and are doing, you know, through stock options or restricted stock comp as part of their compensation programs. I think that the predominance, if I had to put a number, like two thirds plus are people who think the stocks are cheap, that they're doing it because they're they're sort of value stocks. Um, I don't know, but do you, do you have data that says that they actually are buying it at the wrong time? I've looked at academic studies in the past, um, haven't looked recently, so it may have changed. Admittedly, this might've been 20 years ago um, when I was in business school looking yeah. at that. and. Uh, uh, so I haven't had a chance to look at the recent data, um, but certainly uh, there are definitely great management teams that do a good job of buying back stocks. We're just cautious of you know financial engineering and, and also as well as trying to manage earnings, but also the stock issuance for tech companies. And, yes. and that also doesn't get added back oftentimes and people overlook that. Oh, yeah. It's a real cost. Yeah, no. And even when I was first started reporting some of the net buybacks that I thought, hey, maybe they're doing 2% net buybacks on the S&P. That wasn't fully accounting for all the share issuance that these companies do, and I think so. I think the real number is closer to one percent now for the S and P. Yeah. And and small caps are notorious for actually being share issuers. They actually do in in your space. I think if you looked at the Russell two thousand, it's probably a few percent a year is because they're always raising capital. Um, and so that that's where buybacks can make an interesting difference for people who actually are reducing shares outstanding. Yep. But on just to advocate for dividends, I think one other aspect. Uh, that gets misreported or uh, is not clear is that it really reduces the volatility of, of the portfolio as well, which buybacks may too, um, but dividends have a lot of advantages. A bit more predictable. The people, once they pay the dividend, they don't like to cut it. Buybacks come and go, much more volatile stream, but the dividends, the, the management teams tend to not want to reduce. Yeah. And look, dividends, if you look at the total contribution to equity return, I think since the 1970s, they've accounted for 60% of the return. If you go back 70 years, it's a little bit less. It's about 40 to 50%. So management teams have been increasing their dividends and their payout ratios. Let's go back to, so it's been a remarkable period for growth as a factor, um, sort of growth versus value, small cap value in particular has been very troubled. What do you think is going on in, in all this? How do you explain to clients why they should be sticking with small cap value versus sticking with the, what's been, what's been working? Yeah. So the, the last 10 years has been a, a remarkable period for growth. Um, one aspect is we were in a period where interest rates were very low. 
And um, small caps typically outperform when GDP is above trend. Um, we've had variances in GDP, um, but the debt, it goes back to that. Small caps have a lot of leverage. And also the indices are poorly constructed, in my opinion, for small cap, at least most of them are. 30% um, of the Russell 2000 don't generate profits. So you have a kind of an environment where you have thousands of companies um, in the Russell 2000 where maybe 500 don't make a profit um, at certain period of times. And we focus on companies that actually are generating free cash flow in, our, in my strategy and uh, are profitable. So I think small cap gets a bad rap. But if you really look at the amount of debt they have today, net debt to EBITDA metric, for example, it's pretty similar to large caps. It's about 1.7 times. Um, the amount of small cap borrowing from the banks, though, is quite different than the large caps. Mm. Much more reliant on bank lending. It's about 50% versus 20% uh, for the large caps. And importantly, which is starting to get more attention, is the floating rate debt. So for small caps, floating rate debt is about 40%. And if you compare that to large caps, large caps only have between 10 and 15% of their debt that's floating. Um, but small caps have done a good job of terming out their debt. So they're, if you look at their effective interest rate, um, it's about 6.5%. Rolling forward, it could be even higher depending on where rates go. Um, but for large caps, it could be between 3 and 3.5%, 3 which is quite an advantage. Right. That's, that's similar to the numbers I've seen. And I've seen well, some of the piece that I did showing about it's, it's increased a lot more for the small caps in aggregate that because of that point about the bank lending and, and are there certain sectors where you find, let's say it goes to say outside financials, but where, where do you see the debt, the greatest issue for the small cap companies? It's across the board industrials for one. I mean, there's so many different subsectors with industrials and they've really been reliant on debt uh, and a lot of overlevered companies. Mm -hmm. The other one is uh, communication services. So you have a lot of legacy entertainment names, media companies that did a lot of acquisitions and they're just never able to generate enough free cash flow to pay down the debt. Yeah, what's interesting about what you said that I, I, we, I've been looking at the earnings segments for large caps versus small caps. And so I uh, show, we have this thing called the earnings path tool on our website and you could pick up any index. We have all the sort of S&P indexes, MSCI indexes, Russell indexes, and a bunch of funds, um, some, of, some of our indexes. I see, you know, the, the large caps, S&P 500, X Energy, I see their earnings up about 10%. Right now, you have about 90% of that having reported. If you look at the S&P, which includes energy, energy sector is down about 40%. This is talking about this quarter, you know, quarter over year over year for this quarter is what the, the numbers when I talk about 10% earnings growth, what does that actually mean? So it's this latest earnings report and, and comparing it to the previous year's earnings report. Now, when I go to the S&P 600 and we talk about, again, so 5% in aggregate for the large caps, I show small caps down about 12%, about 11.6 11, for S&P 600. But the sectors that are down the most, it's interesting you talked about the, the leverage and the debt in communication services and industrials. I show industrial small caps in the S&P 600 down 26% earnings and communication services down almost 90%, which is probably some, just a few, 23% of the index, probably a few, it's only 23 companies. I'm sure it's like one or two outliers driving that. But the industrials being 18% of the S&P 600, it's the, it's the second biggest sector and having a quarter earnings decline. Do you th if you were to guesstimate from that quarter decline, how much is that interest cost? How much is the actual business? 
Yeah. So for the Russell 2000, and I know you're referencing the Russell, uh, excuse me, the S&P 600, which is a, a higher quality index. They're more profitable. They got to get profitable to get in the S&P family versus the Russell 2000 has no profit requirement. Yeah. And if you look at the, um, the small cap universe, interest expense as a percentage of sales is over 4%. It's actually pretty close to in line with its historical average. Um, large caps, on the other hand, is, is closer to 3%. So in some cases, the interest expense could be eating up 30%, 40% of the, of the profitability, uh, the operating profit of a company in a year whenever rates are kind of going against them like this year. Yes. So I think it's huge. Um, it bears watching. I think though, going to 2024, whenever we do get rate hikes, it's gonna alleviate a lot of the pressures. Financials, um, interestingly, on their earnings, there's a lot of growth potential there, but it's not being priced in on the stocks. The stocks are trading below book value, down the KRE index, the regional bank index is down still over 20%, very volatile. Had a nice day on Tuesday when CPI came in lower than expectations. But if you look at the charge-offs um, this year, they're about 13 basis points. And next year, the analysts on the street are modeling about 25 basis points. But if you look at what's actually getting priced in, the market's assuming that the losses are gonna actually be twice the amount that the analysts have priced in, so about mm -hmm. 50 basis points. So in context, to the GFC, the great financial crisis, the net charge-offs peaked about 95 basis points. So about double about where they the market thinks they're gonna be this time. But I don't think they're gonna be as bad. I think a lot of the interest rates uh, and the pressure and the funding costs are really gonna help a lot of the banks. Now there will be charge-offs in certain areas that are trouble like commercial real estate and within commercial real estate office. Um, but we're watching that closely and being selective. Hmm. You know, it's interesting on that, that same earnings tool I show, they've been, they, the financials are the largest exposure in that S&P 600, but the financials are showing earnings growth of 40% this quarter uh, in terms of that year over year number. What, what do you think is happening there? Is that the banks? Is that other segments of the financials that are driving that, that number higher? Well, for the Russell 2000, the financials um, make up maybe about 15% or so of the index uh, compared to 24% for Russell 2000 value. I, I think a lot of it is the, the banks. Um, you do have insurance companies that are holding up pretty well and they'll do better as the equity markets recover. Um, and then you have the diversified financials, uh, some of the m and advisory firms, some of the mortgage REITs um, and other diversified financials. So I think it's a mix, but a lot of it is gonna come from the banks. And what's supporting their earnings growth this year compared to, to last year? Uh, this year, I think the provisioning um, might have been lower. I think the uh, net interest margins have kind of gone against them. The funding costs have just been terrible in the securities portfolio. But I think the bank term lending facility that the Fed put in really helped. I don't think earnings growth would have been nearly as good. It just it really gave confidence to have the deposits stay sticky. If the deposits left and they would have to raise capital, it would have been detrimental to the banks. And I think the the government saved them and bailed them out. So the, the small caps, I think um, earnings growth should be positive again next uh, next year. And a lot will depend on interest rates. It's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to compare the S&P 600 to the Russell 2000 quickly while we're talking. And it, it, I get a pretty different number for the Russell 2000 and S&P 6. So it, you know, in, in looking at these quarter over quarter earnings numbers, there always could be a few outliers that drive it. And so we'll, we'll talk more about your firm's views uh, on sectors, in, I think, in the second half of our conversation. But as you think about wrapping up this first half, we, we 
as as we sort of step back and and think about the the environment for small, we're talking a lot about interest costs. That is one of those key issues. Um, so a lot comes down to the Fed at the end of the day. A lot comes down to the Fed, and and look, small caps are the cheapest they've been since the Great Financial Crisis, trading at the lows for the last twenty two years. They're trading at a thirty percent discount to large caps, and to the to themselves, they're trading twenty percent cheaper. And then to um, small cap growth, uh, they're fifteen percent cheaper. So a lot of this news, and I think the professor alluded to this in his remarks, is they're already priced for a recession. Uh, small caps have seen a lot of earnings revisions, and typically small caps start to do well and trough three to six months before earnings revisions start to get revised higher. So we think it's likely that earnings have troughed, but you know we've been talking a lot about earnings and we pay close attention to the quarters and to the year, but importantly, it's, it comes down to for long-term investors like ourselves, we focus a lot on valuation. I think short-term traders, as Professor Siegel alluded to in the past, focus more on earnings and earnings are critical and that's what stock prices go off of, but for the long-term valuations matter more and small caps are trading at approximately 12 times, small cap value is even cheaper. And 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 are the are you see any flows going there? Are people reacting? Have they been going? Are the flows just going to the large cap tech? No, recently that's a good question. In, in the last couple of months, we've started to see a pickup in, in small cap flows and in, into the ETFs as well and into the funds. Okay, I mean that that that, is, that could be one of those big things that helps drive sent. Well, it's a reflection of sentiment, and then does the flows actually drive some performance? But uh, I think that's been thing that the Magnificent Seven have had their at their back for for some time. Yeah, I mean it's been an unusual year in that uh, in many respects. But for small caps, they usually are the best performing asset class in the third year of a presidential cycle, which we're in this year. Clearly, with the small caps being flat and S&P being up almost 18% and NASDAQ being up 45%, it's really reversed. And uh, we're cautiously optimistic that that could potentially reverse next year in the actual election year, which historically hasn't been the best year for small caps compared to large caps, but that potentially could flip. Now let's talk about a sector that's on everybody's minds. You heard, you know, this inflation story is coming so much to housing and, and home prices. You were telling me a little bit about an issue you're focused on as it deals with real estate. Tell our listeners a little bit about some of the dynamics you see in the real estate market today. Sure. So I think uh, most people are aware that it's a tight housing market and the beneficiaries have been home builders and home builders have done extraordinarily well this year. Um, we did own a home builder last year. We sold it uh, too soon. Um, from our research, we found historically when mortgage rates rise by 1% or more in a given year, home builders have trouble keeping up with the rest of the market and often have really terrible stock returns. This year has been an outlier. Clearly, we knew that the supply was going to be an issue and we got uh, constructive on the home builders, but we didn't think it would go this far. Certainly, the the home builders bought down mortgage rates and made it more affordable. But where we're spending more of our time and where we see opportunity today is actually plays on the existing home market. And the ways that we're expressing that view is being involved with uh, the real estate brokerage side. So many people that buy a home know that you um, have to pay up and there's not a lot of supply. Typically, the existing home sales in one year is about 5 million. Uh, this year, it's about 4.2 million. 
And the great financial crisis, it kind of troughed around four to 4.1 million. So we're pretty close to the great financial crisis in terms of existing home sales. And of course, uh, real estate brokers make most of their profits from housing sales and volumes and getting paid a commission. So uh, there's been stocks that are down 80% uh, just because of the lack of volume and the mm. lack of commission. So there are approximately 1.6 million realtors uh, that are part of the National Real Estate Association. Um, that's about 75% of the, the number of brokers out there. So there's about over 2 million. And there's actually other news that really have caused other of these stocks to derate further and um, cause what we think is an oversold environment for many of these real estate brokers. So there's been a case um, in October, uh, the Burnett-Sitzer case, uh, that uh, the ruling was $1.8 billion against uh, two real estate brokers, one owned by Berkshire, the other one Keller Realty. And this has caused massive ramifications in the real estate market. And what is at stake is the commission. So typically, the sell side brokers get 6% and they are the ones that pay the buy side broker and they typically split it. So three and three. There's been antitrust cases um, against those two, but now there's copycat lawsuits and the DOJ and the FTC are also involved. And likely there'll be either an injunction coming soon or a motion, but we think there'll be a settlement with the DOJ and the FTC. Um, there'll be more rules surrounding transparency and yes, potentially the commission rates will come down. So the case is really saying um, the 3%- And they should come down. <laughs> 6% is a very high transaction fee to sell a house. It is. It's one of the highest in the world. In fact, in the UK, it, it's half. Uh, there are only two other countries, Japan being one, where the real estate commission is over 6%. But this is the way it's been for 40 years, and certainly it's subject to change. I think some people in their models have the real estate commission's going down by 300 basis points, which I think is very aggressive. I think both play a very important role. It's the most important purchase someone is, is making in their lifetime. And you don't want to see a market, and we tried this uh, in our country where the buyers can represent themselves, uh, but it's very challenging. There's a lot of ramifications, a lot of risk involved, but the 3% is likely going to come down over time. But if you Make, so this is a lot. I've got some personal experience in this in this situation as 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 a home home buyer and and a few homes I'm on my third home now. But first time, a real estate agent wanted to keep the full six percent commission to themselves and sold the house to their own client at rates less than I was offering. It's a quite interesting dynamic of the incentives at play sometimes, and the and it was a real messy case here in Philadelphia. Uh, I won't go too much into details, but the the person selling their house let, had a lot of money on the table because the agent did I thought some shady stuff. Um, but that was an interesting dynamic, and and you know the, you, there are new platforms to try to represent and 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 represent you at a at a fixed fee. And so that you can only pay sort of with that 3% to one side. So it's interesting to hear maybe in general that uh, these costs will come down in a, in a big way. I think that'd be very good for all consumers. Not great for agents. People listening who are no. real estate agents are not gonna be happy. No, and uh, I think we'll see fewer agents going forward. It's gonna be harder to make a living. Uh, if you look at kind of the scale and what's happened in terms of how many transactions per year, um, it used to be 12, now there's five. There's a lot of new technology, and really, you still haven't seen. You need that you need a buyer's agent to see the the houses. Yeah. You can now see I mean, the video tours. You can get just by looking on Zillow and Redfin and all these websites. I mean, you could do all the research to know, stay on top of the market yourself as a buyer. 
you know, so I think the buyer's agent is probably the outdated agent. I mean, I'm sure there's negotiations and, and hey, you're making a big purchase. So you might want some legal representation to protect yourself. Yeah. And it comes down to who's paying the buyer. And that's what's up for discussion is, is this going to come out of the, of the buyer's pocket then to, if you want your own representation? And then how are you going to finance that? That's another question because usually it gets rolled up into the seller's mortgage, uh, to the buyer's mortgage. And so there's all kinds of questions of, of how that's going to be transacted. Um, but incentives do matter. And, and one of the things that the sticking points is the MLS, right? So the listings, the, the seller has to list before the sale, before the listing goes up, how much the buyer is going to receive. Um, so there's some incentives for maybe some buyer agents to only show the houses where they're going to l- earn a higher commission. They may not show you the house that they're only going to earn one and a half percent. Right. So these are consumers some consumers have to do their own work, I- and not many consumers know you can negotiate your own commissions with the selling agent. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of room for change. But again, uh, these stocks are down 80%. over eighty percent. When we do the earnings power of these companies, combined with the lack of transactions in the market. These companies that have cut costs uh, are close to uh, break even on free cash flow. And I think in the next couple of years, we can see them appreciate significantly. And that's even if commissions do come down because they can manage the cost as well. Right. So they could have a benefit from higher volumes. Rates coming down could be super, super helpful um, to the, just that volume going up. Yep. And there's other plays too where listings and, and companies that are playing directly with more of the consumer will certainly benefit too. Come back to the home builder, because I, I find that a fascinating sector, but personally watching that sector closely, you know, as one that you'd say, that, that you would say mortgage rates are, are so much higher. How are they still, I mean, they're close to highs, all time highs. When you look at a home building index, they're the, uh, they have, the, the only, maybe say the existing home sales are down a lot, but people still need some houses and these, these, these home builders are doing, all right, are they gonna, feel more of a crunch or is it all tied to, hey, Fed's going to lower rates, mortgage rates going to come down, these home builders, there's structural demand from demographics that people need homes. Is there a is there a longer term outlook for these home builders that, that say people should not be so afraid about this current mortgage rate environment? So look, I'm positive on the home builders longer term, not enough on the stock level to get involved here. I think they are close to intrinsic value based on the pent-up demand that we're going to likely see as rates come down. Uh, they've done a good job managing costs. And you remember, they were really hit with all the lack of labor because you needed people to build the houses. Also, all the materials that go into building a house had gone up significantly. So their margins looked like they were going to compress. When all that started to come down, the home builders managed to get through it. Um, they had bought certain ones had taken advantage of buying lands or buying option on land and have really managed their costs and uh, had some wiggle room to buy down people's mortgages. And if we look at the, the, the studies that come out on who's buying homes today and how much the average new home today, the person buying it earns over $100,000. It used to be $80,000. The, the actual home itself, the average price of a new home is over $350,000. And the number one reason people are moving is to be closer to family and friends. And number two is some kind of life event, which will be maybe some kids or some divorce. Um, and then you have other reasons too, that people are looking to move, but where else are you going to move if there's not a lot of inventory? You're going to have a new home and it's going to be by one of the home builders. And there's been a lot of consolidation, so more scale. So the profits and the margins are better than what they used to be. 
I, and I, we're, we sort of talk about, is this cycle, could it be different than some of the other cycles? Because, you know, there's so much less supply because everybody has these 3% mortgage rates and now mortgage is seven, eight percent And so like it, it been in the past where you lower rates and that supports housing, but now lowering rates might free up all sorts of new supply on the market. And you might not get a similar cycle as past cycles. Is there, is there something to that story and thesis you think? I think there is. And I think it comes down to this. I think the price of the house will meet the mortgage rate and the mortgage cost. So one thing that people are not modeling in is potentially home prices will fall. Um, maybe a couple percent, it could be more, it could be 10, 15%, it wouldn't surprise me. And that will make mm. mortgage availability and affordability rather um, more attractive. And that For will start, sure. and that should benefit the brokers as well. And, and even other retailers that sell into the, uh, the housing environment. So this is a case for long, short, Brokers versus housing. Uh, That's an interesting play right there. Yeah, I think 2024 will be an interesting year to see how this all plays out, especially if we get cuts early on. Um, let's talk about, so the home builders are part of the consumer discretionary sector. They're one of the, the sort of subsectors in the consumer sector. I know that's one of the other sectors you guys are doing a lot of work on. Tell us, based on sort of economic views, what you think about the other opportunities in consumer discretionary stocks today? Yeah, so we own names in the uh, restaurant industry as well as the apparel industry and then also in the auto parts space. So we own companies that are trading under 15 times earnings, oftentimes 10, 11 times, that generate strong fee cash flows that don't have a lot of debt, that just been sold off on the on the fears of the, the consumer and the health of the consumer. Consumer uh, debt to GDP is about uh, 65%. There's a lot of still uh, savings. And it depends on what part of the income spectrum you're on. Um, but this disposable income and the um, insatiable need for Americans to spend, right? Don't get in the way of the cash register, uh, is still going to help a lot of discretionary names. Now, labor has been one that's really hurt the labor, uh, excuse me, the restaurant industry. Um, so names that have uh, a lot of exposure in places like California, where labor costs have risen, um, I, we think this is a catalyst going to 2024 as uh, labor costs will start to level off. Uh, and then food prices have come down and then there's been store rationalization and there's a lot of uh, franchise opportunities where the free cash flow just falls right down to the bottom line for the companies. So on the apparel side, we had this um, pent up demand on goods, then revenge spending on services. And, and in services, we had played that with uh, hotel REITs. Um, but on the apparel side, a lot of these names, whether it's uh, clothing or shoes, we own a couple different names in, the, in those sectors, uh, we think have been oversold and are trading at the COVID lows. Um, so we think these are really interesting opportunities. The consumer will continue to spend, and it all comes down to jobs. Consumer will continue to spend if they have a job, and, and we're watching that. Um, but for the time being, it seems like uh, there's a lot of opportunity in consumer discretionary across all those subsectors. I wonder the the Amazon effect on some of these things. Sort of Amazon, as we're going to talk about magnificent seven million all, but I I wonder even just in the consumer behavior, do you do you notice this Amazon effect of maybe we all spend more because it's just so much easier? Like when I see my my friends, we're we're out, we're talking about something. The, the the amount of time it would take to go do research, go to this store and get it delivered, there's so much more friction in the old world. But now if somebody tells you they're using something, you buy it and 30 seconds later on Amazon, it's delivered. At least I know in my group of friends that happens all the time. Uh, is, is that supporting spending in general for consumer discretionary stocks? Oh yeah, I think it has. I mean, the Amazon effect 
has made so many more people willing to spend, I think, than they otherwise would. How profitable it is for Amazon on the retail side, we, we know it's not great. I mean, we as consumers have benefited a lot. And if you look at the cost to manufacturing a lot of the goods that we buy from Amazon, uh, they're really cheap. I mean, the globalization helped that. Now we'll see what happens with supply chains and reshoring and uh, other competition to Amazon, whether the reg you know, regulatory environment changes for them. But the consumer loves to spend. And, and same with our household. We get a lot of Amazon deliveries. Um, but you have other beneficiaries. Look, Target had really good earnings this week. Um, traffic was down about 4 or 5%, but margins beat by over 100 basis points uh, because they're managing their costs. So once the interest rate environment gets a little bit more clear and the labor statistics come into a level where we're not always constantly fearing of a recession and people are not fearing losing their job, I think the consumer will go to the stores. They do check out the items. You see it at places like Target, um, their hybrid model of uh, order online and pick up, uh, that continues to do well for them. So it's not only Amazon, uh, but you know, Walmart obviously had its own recent struggles. Uh, they put out some cautionary comments about the consumer, although they've done so well this year and the stock was trading at 30 times. So I think it was just some profit taking as well. And then some of the cautious uh, commentary around the, the health of the consumer. On, on the restaurant case, we're talking, you talked about sort of one of the cases, just labor costs and, and uh, that coming down being, being useful. Is there something on consumer tastes or, or a certain style of restaurants? What, any, any trends that you're noticing about where you, where in these small cap restaurants you want to be? Yeah. So we, we've had a kind of um, a barbell approach where we had a, a more higher end restaurant. Ruth's Chris Steakhouse was, was one of our companies that were taken out this year. So we've had 12 acquisitions over the last three years in uh, the small cap value strategy. And we usually have about 35 to 40 names in the portfolio. So having 12 names being taken out, and I think the reason it was taken out was because it, it was a high margin restaurant company that really resonated with people and the business crowd too. And then half their stores mm -hmm. were franchise, half owned. Uh, and then we play on the, the value segment too, the, the, the breakfast, um, the Denny's, another portfolio, we have Cracker Barrel. Uh, so these are companies that have offered a lot of value to consumers and on the tastes, uh, what I think a lot of restaurants are trying to adapt to is um, the different uh, diversity in different regions that you have with immigration, um, as well as catering to a younger crowd and getting them used to a, a, a more refreshed menu, let's say at a Denny's or a Cracker Bell catering to a, an older crowd that's used to the chicken fried steak. Yeah. Um, also offering alcohol now in Cracker Bell. Many of the stores are, are now offering wine and beer where they used to not to. And that's a very high margin business as we know for restaurants. Very interesting. Now we, we started off the show, you talked a lot about value and dividends as one of the factors. One of the sectors that's that's been punished this year a bit for dividends has been utilities. Uh, how do you all think about utilities today and the outlook for next year? Yeah, so we've recently been buying um, and adding to our utility companies. We think uh, they've been oversold. And it goes to your earlier question in the segment asking which companies have been issuing debt. And historically, utilities need to issue debt and equity for that matter. Uh, and with cost of debt rising so significantly, a lot of these utilities, I think, in our opinion, have been oversold because taking a near-term view, we think you know these rates will not stay high. You know, higher for longer doesn't mean for the next five years. So we're long-term investors, and just a shameless plug for um, our founder Jim Cullen's book that came out last year. Uh, it's the case for long-term value investment. So we take a longer-term view, and we think um, you know. 
2024 and prospectively should be a good year, hopefully for value after a decade of, of underperformance. And, and again, sort of the case on that is succinctly, why value versus growth today? One is valuation, interest rates coming down, inflation coming down, dividend growth really contributing to total performance and um, the sector being exceedingly cheap on a historical basis. When I think about what has powered growth higher, I mean, there's definitely the rate effect, but they had, you know, go back to 2013, some of these classic tech stocks were actually reasonably priced relative to some high dividend stocks. Then they had much faster earnings growth and huge multiple expansion. And the question to me is, can they, when does their earnings growth inflect? And uh, is, 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 do you see it in the next few years? It's possible. I mean, these are great companies and you're right. Um, after the great financial crisis, these tech companies were trading at same valuation levels as the value stocks. And they shouldn't have been, right? As um, you and the professor have discussed in the past. And I think that earnings growth eventually would come down. The problem with growth and growth, you could definitely make money in any year on, on growth stocks. And I, I think there's a case to be made for owning both value and growth uh, over periods of time. But typically, what gets growth investors in trouble from my experience of just being observer is overpaying for growth, right? Growth doesn't really come in as far and at multiples, sometimes at 25, 30 times, you really need growth and earnings to hit. Uh, and if it doesn't, those stocks are in trouble. And in the book, uh, the, the Long-Term Case for Value Investing by Jim Cullen, you know, he talks about, you know, large cap value. If you look back over like 40 years and even sub, uh, you know, time periods within that large cap value isn't often the top performing sector or even the top, you know, two. It's really because they just, when they go down, they don't go down as much as growth. So it's staying the course, being invested for the long term, and with uh, valuations at 11, 12, 13 times, which are like earnings yields of, you know, 12 and a half percent, you're going to make money just being in stocks that you're not overpaying for. Right. And and in, 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 as you think about closing thoughts, the case for Schaefer Cullen as the active manager on these, give us 30 seconds, final final case for looking at your, your portfolios. Yeah, sure. So we're um, a New York-based investment firm found in the 80s. All we do is value investing, and we do have a, a big focus on dividend investing. Uh, we don't overpay for growth, and we look for underappreciated earnings growth potential. Um, and we have a, a robust research staff uh, that really buys into the value investing philosophy. So I think um, for the long term, uh, we have large cap, small cap, mid cap, and international emerging strategies uh, for value investors. And you can find more about us at cullenfunds.com. Well, I appreciate you coming to our Wharton studio. We obviously share a lot of similar mindsets, thinking about dividends, thinking a lot about valuation opportunities around the world. Uh, it's been a lot of fun having you here on Wharton's campus. Thanks for having me. Well, you could always listen to us uh, on our Behind the Markets podcast the next week, Thanksgiving holidays. We won't uh, be doing a live show, but you'll get us back uh, in live uh, the following week. We got to thank our producer in the studio here, Chris Tooks. We've got Matt Datz. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.